International Astrology Radio. I am Chris Brennan, and today is Thursday, May 5th, 2011, here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my guest today is one of the leading authorities in the world on the study of me- study and practice of medieval astrology today, uh, Dr. Men- Dr. Benjamin Dykes. Uh, ben first made a name for himself about four years ago now, when he published the first complete translation of a massive 13th-century astrological compendium uh, by Guido Bonatti. Since then, he has published numerous additional translations by various medieval astrological authorities, including works by Mashallah, Salah bin Bishr, and Abu Mashar. Last year, he published a three-volume series of translations focusing on natal astrology titled Persian Nativities. Uh, And this year, he has started to release a new series that focuses on horary astrology. The first book, which which just came out last March, uh, this March, was a translation of an influential work on horary and electional astrology by Al-Kindi, titled The Forty Chapters. This month, he's released another landmark volume titled The Search of the Heart, which is a translation of a 12th-century compendium by Herman of Corinthia on horary astrology, thought interpretation, and consultation charts. So with that introduction out of the way, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So let's get right to it. Uh what are these what is this new series of books that you're you're coming out with? What is this horary series? Well, this is a series um of three books that will basically cover uh all the areas of horary astrology. Um, one of them, uh, the first one, is The Search of the Heart. It's technically volume one, although it came out uh, second of all. And like you said, it's on uh, consultation charts, uh, what are called victors. Sometimes they're called a mubtaz or an almutin. And um, then the second volume, Al-Kindi, which came out last month, is sort of a standalone book on horary and elections. It's, it begins with a, an introduction to astrology, but it's not absolutely complete because if you read it, you see that Alkindi is mainly interested in the principles that will help you decide whether a matter will perfect or not. So he's not going over every possible configuration of planets, for instance. And then the third one, which will come out this summer, is I think it will be the largest horary book out there called The Book of the Nine Judges. And that was compiled in the 12th century by, uh, mainly by Hugo of Santaya. And it is a um, compendium of numerous horary works from Arabic astrologers that are divided up by house. So, for example, he takes, you know, one of Umar's books on horary and cuts it up into little pieces and likewise with some other people's works and he arranges all of the first house material together all the second house material, and so on, so that you get a synoptic view on all of these traditional authorities on individual questions. And that will be about six to 700 pages. Excellent. Uh, so that basically comprises the majority of the earliest uh, complete uh, texts on horary astrology, basically, right? Right, from the Arabic period, yeah. Or really... Um, most complete books, period, since we don't have any more of the Persian material that would have been out there. Right, from the 3rd to the 7th century? Right. Okay, uh, so what is the this new book about? What is The Search of the Heart about? Well, The Search of the Heart, um, the main topic it has to do with is uh, understanding a client's thoughts, or what I 
call thought interpretation. And it has to do with the astrologer looking at the chart and understanding what the client wants to know about before the client actually asks the question. Um, and as part of that, as part of determining what the significator of thought is, you're usually looking for a single planet to analyze. Um, part of that, in some of these methods, there are dozens of methods in the book, um, part of them use the calculating of victors or mubtazes or almutans of various types to identify what the significator of thought is. And um, in some cases, you're looking for um, a victor over the whole chart. Sometimes it might be the victor over a specific house topic. Um, and this interpretation of thought could have served several purposes, and I make some suggestions as to uh, how it was used uh, in conjunction with normal horary rules, because the, the treatment of significators of thought is distinct from the normal horary significators that we would think of, like the Lord of the Seventh for romance. Okay. Uh, so, and what is that distinction then between, uh, say, a, a normal significator versus a, a a victor in a chart? Well, uh, uh, just a, a significator, pure and simple, is any any planet or really anything in the chart that signifies something generally. It might signify something by its own nature, for example, Venus signifying love, or it might be a house that signifies something uh, or a lot. So, uh, or it might be, um, you know, the ruler of the third house will signify third house things too. So those are normal significators. A victor is something different. A victor is a way to take um, competing possibilities for what planet might indicate uh, uh, some topic or a thought, and using a decision procedure to figure out which of these competing options is the victor, which one wins. And that, that is literally what the Arabic says. It, it, it means which planet wins. Okay. So, it, so it could be, for example, that although Venus signifies love naturally, if you follow certain procedures to identify a victor, it might be that the victor over the places that mean romance will turn out to be Mercury or Saturn or some unexpected planet. So you will get some different results uh, if you use a victor procedure than if you simply look directly at a house or the lord of a house. Okay. And it's through the determination or through determining these victors that the book basically describes how to determine what's on a person's mind when they come to see you? Right. And and uh, sometimes it seems that these significators of thought are there to um, help the astrologer identify what the focus of the discussion should be. Sometimes it seems to be there so that the astrologer can uh, maybe impress someone with being able to predict what the thought is. Um, so there, there are several uses for it, but the, what, what they all have in common is that the thought is technically unstated when you do this procedure. Um, so significators of thought, finding these, uh, uh, this happens in cases where you don't know up front what the question is. Okay. Right. This was something that we 
talked about as you're working on this book, which was what's the functional significance of being able to determine what a person is thinking simply by casting a chart before they said anything. Mm -hmm. um, but you're thinking and that it plays into some sort of larger theme having to do with uh, the divination, partially the divinational experience of, of astrology? Yes, that's part of it. Um, uh, divinational experience... Uh, when you confront a chart and you're confronting someone, and, and Herman's title for the book is kind of apt because we are searching through the, through the chart, we're trying to get into the, the heart of the matter, and we're also talking about the client's search for truth. So um, it, it plays a role in initially um, making this search and discovering what the topic is or possibly even should be. Right. And that actually, this brings up some issues or some questions. One of them that I know you deal with pretty extensively in the introduction is what the conceptual distinction is between what you're describing, uh, determining what a person is thinking, versus uh, horary astrology. Since in, for most people in contemporary horary practice, some of that is kind of a given. There's some level with a horary chart uh, does describe what a person is thinking. And so in addition to the answer to the question. So there's a issue of if those two things are conceptually distinct. Yeah, and I think I think they are distinct. If you read enough of these texts, and I have uh, append about 60 pages of appendices of original material from, uh, from many different authors, the main distinction is that uh, the significator of thought is about unstated thoughts, whereas horary is more about explicit questions. And there seems to be an assumption that <clears throat> after you identify the thought, you then have a discussion with the client and narrow down what the question really is. So in a sense, the significator of thought gives you some general parameters for the question, but then through discussing it with the client, you then narrow down what it is in that general area of life that they want to focus on. Right. Yeah, this was a big um, uh, historical issue for me, and I, I mean, this book that you just released is definitely a landmark book uh, for me because of my interest in this question about the history and development of horary, since for mm -hmm. most people who have studied Hellenistic astrology or studied the translations that are available uh, that has survived, one of the things that's really striking is the lack of Horary, especially compared to the medieval tradition, where it's you know it's a full-fledged branch, and there are dozens and dozens of of works written on the topic. But yet, in the Hellenistic tradition, none of the mainstream authors appear to have dealt with the topic extensively. Right, and there's there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, <clears throat> uh, one is that if you read Herman's book, uh, he makes it seem as though in some places that you can answer the chart question simply through the significator of thought um, without going to all of the normal house rulerships. And this thought material also does not start out the way the horary handbooks do. For example, um, if you read a standard horary textbook and it will say something like, if someone comes to you and asks about marriage, then look at the Lord of the Seventh, look at this, look at that. It always starts out with the assumption of a specific question. These thought texts, instead they'll say, 
do this procedure, and if you find this, then the client is thinking about subject XYZ. There's no, there's no upfront statement of exactly what their question is. That seems to only come afterwards. And although a lot of the thought techniques do use, say, the Lord of the Ascendant, which you might normally expect uh, to describe what the person is interested in, they don't always. In fact, Saul says that in a horary question, you need to look at both the significator of thought and the house lords for the specific question. So you've got more planets to deal with. Um, so sometimes the significator of thought is used alongside the normal horary significators. Sometimes you are, can use the significator of thought to answer the question all by itself. And there are, and, um, there are examples in the book okay. of doing this. And that's definitely what made it so huge for me because I think that you can clearly see at that stage the conceptual distinction that is being drawn between, uh, let's say, consultation charts or, or uh, thought interpretation and full-fledged horary where you're proper, where you're answering specific questions. Right. Um, and and, and one, one place that is, is really intriguing to find this, and I have this in the appendices, is... Um, Al-Rijal, who is often known as Haley Abin Rajal in the West from his Latinized name, in his horary book, um, he, at the beginning of the horary book, after describing the general meanings of the planets and so on, he has long sections on determining the, the significator of thought. This is before he even gets to house topics. Then when he gets to the house topics... After telling you what each house generally means, he then says, and if the significator of thought falls into this house, and it's a fiery sign, then the querent is thinking about this. So, not only in terms of... Um, so, it seems to, that the way the book is written, he's telling you that the significator of thought has to be studied first, you identify a house topic, and then you get into all the specific questions like, um, you know, will I, you know, will I marry her? That kind of thing. Okay. So it has not just uh, historical precedence, but some sort of procedural precedence. It seems to have a procedural precedence. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And um, as far as trying to fill out, um, I mean, the, the other big thing about this book is that it's not just a single text that you've translated on this sub subject, but Herman's work was a compendium of a number of different texts, and you've even expanded upon that by adding several appendices, including, uh, for the first time, a full translation, or a, a partial translation of a chapter of Hephaestus of, the of Thebes uh, on the, uh, I guess, divination of thoughts from, his, from book three of his compendium? Yeah. Um, in this chapter, it's uh, book three, chapter four of Hephaestio. Um, among other things, he describes how to identify what the person is there to ask about. And he uses the 12th parts of the ascendant to identify what the thought is. And he then gives 144 different uh, possible thoughts. So he goes through, uh, depending upon what the ascendant is, he'll give you all of the possible thoughts. So he goes, goes through every, every combination.
um, he wasn't the only one to um, uh, to uh, use the twelfth parts. The Indians are also credited with using twelfth parts in a slightly different method. Um, I don't think the methods are, you know, contradictory or incompatible, but they they describe the method differently, still using the twelfth parts. And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I'm assuming maybe everyone knows what a twelfth part is, but I can explain that if if you like. Um, yeah, I think most I definitely most modern astrolog- astrologers will know it as the Dwada Shamsha. Um, yeah, but you right. like to go ahead. Well, so each sign is divided into 12 little bits of two and a half degrees each, and each of these 12th parts is um, uh, attributed to one of the signs in the zodiac. And so the first two and a half degrees of a sign always belong to that very sign. The next two and a half degrees, from two and a half to five degrees, uh, uh, is attributed to the following sign. So if you're using whole sign houses, for instance, and the ascendant of the horary chart falls in the fifth, twelfth part, then you want to look at the fifth house of the chart and look at planets in it and see what its ruler is doing. It's a very simple, straightforward uh, use of the twelfth parts, and it's attributed to the Indians. That one is. Okay. And then also at the 12 parts, you have delineations for every single one of those, what, 144 delineations from Hephaestio? From Hephaestio, yeah. And his his meanings seem to be drawn from a combination of uh, features of the sign. For example, if it's a four-footed sign, maybe the person is asking about animals. Uh, also, like the ruler of the sign. Um, so he, he seems to combine those elements to give you at least... Um, standardized thoughts they you know he, he's giving you the general area of of life and the general topic which pertains to the thought okay um and on a different topic you've had in the introduction you mentioned you've had some sort of changing thoughts on the origins of the victors over the course of the past year or so um where where are you at with that at this point well let me tell you what i what my um what my belief, my tentative belief had been about a year ago, and then I'll tell you where I am now. Um, when I was translating material from Abu Bakr's book on nativities, um, he was mentioning that there was a contemporary of his named Al-Anbas who was using these victors um, in a numerical way. There's different ways to do, to do them. Al-Anbas said that he was drawing on Umar al-Tabari um, and explicitly borrowing from Umar to apply these victors to, say, natal charts. And so I thought that um, because I hadn't seen these victors being used in the natal material I was translating, I figured that this use of numerical victors uh, was invented around the time of Al-Anbas, you know, in the first couple generations of the Arabic period. But I had to, I've had to change my mind on that because some of the horary material I've translated for this book make it clear that victors, although victors do not seem to have been used very much for nativities, they were used in horary through these methods that I've been describing. And so what I currently think is that 
early Persian astrologers were inspired by some things in uh, Ptolemy and, and other sources, perhaps. They were inspired to find these victors and apply them to horary charts. And then in the early Arabic period, this practice of using these numerical victor methods was then transferred from horary back into nativities so that in later medieval natal work, including in the Arabic period, you get people recommending that you use them in natal contexts, which does not really seem to have been the case uh, prior um, to, say, the ninth century. And I think one reason for this is because um, Umar, um, to go back to Umar, Umar was mainly known not as a natal astrologer, but a horary astrologer. And in his horary material, he uses these victors. In his natal book, he says you should find the victor, but doesn't tell you how to do it. And so it could have been through the popularity of people like Umar and their use of these horary victors that astrologers picked up these victors and started using them for nativities. So we've got this kind of cross-transferring of methods between different branches. Okay. And this eventually culminated in the later medieval and renaissance tradition with the use of the dignity tables uh, with the specific weighting scores and everything else, right? Yep, and, this, and these methods came from thought interpretation and horary. So when, so when you find in, let's say, a natal, a natal book... Uh, that you should find a victor for some topic in the nativity, they are borrowing from earlier horary and thought interpretation methods. Um, yeah. So I guess that raises the question then, what are some of these methods? Can you mention a couple of methods for uh, that they mention for finding the uh, victor for determining the thoughts in a consultation chart? Uh, sure. Uh, one would be finding the victor over the ascendant, and this would be creating a table in which you uh, assign points, uh, either a single point apiece or uh, weighted points, to the domicile lord of the ascendant, the exalted lord, if there is one, the primary triplicity lord, the bound lord, and the decan lord. So that would be one way of determining, and then which, whichever one has the most points is the victor. So that would be a simple way of finding the victor over a specific house. Okay. Um, and, some uh, of these... Sorry, go ahead. And maybe we should back up for just a minute, because we're talking about consultation charts, right? Yes. Or, or how, they're, how they're, would we define what, what, are the, what is the chart that we're looking at? I'm sorry, say that again? Uh, we're basically looking at a chart cast for the moment that a client approaches the astrologer and the astrologer casts a chart for that moment. Right. Um, so, so sometimes you would look at a victor like that. Sometimes you would look to see, let's say, um, uh, what, uh, what the Lord of the Ascendant is doing, what house it's in, who it's applying to and who it's separating from, or even... Um, uh, well, another, another um, kind of victor technique, which I believe is attributed to the Indians, is that you 
look at the bound Lord and the Deccan Lord of the Ascendant, and you see which of them seems to be strongest, and they tell you how to do this. And then whichever one between them is the strongest will be the significator of thought. So sometimes they, they ranked houses, uh, so that certain houses would make a planet more powerful. Sometimes they were looking at dignities. They would look at solar phase, a whole variety of things. Okay. Uh, one of the techniques I saw that was interesting is Dorotheus's method, which is interesting because it's not in the existing Arabic translation of Book 5, but um, at least in this text, it's attributing a method to him that just involves looking at what house the lot of fortune falls in and the topics of that house becoming prominent in the thoughts of the, the client at that time. Yeah, and I think the one reason to use the lot of fortune would be that, at least how I've been putting it lately, the lot of fortune shows an area that is particularly eventful and where you are in the midst of events happening around you. And so that could have been a reason to identify the lot of fortune as um, showing what kind of events the querent is involved in that are generating the question. Okay. And uh, Herman of Corinthia actually uh, incorporates the lot of fortune in an interesting uh, way that I haven't, I don't usually see outside of Hellenistic texts, um, but he uses derivative houses from fortune. Yes, in one place he makes it absolutely clear that if you're asking about asking a question about wealth, you not only look at the normal significators, but also look at the second house from the lot of fortune. So that's it's very rare to find that. Um, that kind of thing in medieval texts that use use of lot of fortune houses, but it's absolutely clear um, in that section of Herman. Okay. Yeah, that's a very. I mean, that's a technique definitely that was advocated by Valens, but also um, a number of other Hellenistic astrologers as well. Okay. Um, let's see. And I don't think we mentioned who is this. Who is the author of this compendium? Uh, who is Herman of Corinthia? Well, um, Herman was um, a 12th century translator. He was from, across the sea from Italy in an area that's now, now it's, it's part of Austria, uh, called Carinton, or Corinthia. He traveled to Spain um, and hooked up with some other uh, well-known translators of the time. He was asked by people such as the um, bishop of, the, um, of Cluny, Peter the Venerable, to um, translate, um, he and his friend Robert of Ketton were hired to translate the Quran for the first time into Latin, as well as some other things that would help um, explain Islamic theology. But his real love was astronomy and astrology. And he not only translated a whole number of important works, uh, but he also did an original work of his own, called uh, On Essences, and that is a book of really um, astrological cosmology. Um, he's taking the learning of his time and developing a theory of the universe and of metaphysics that in a way puts astrology front and center in understanding the universe. Okay. Would, so, we, call, so he was, would we refer to him as a professional translator? Is he an actual practicing astrologer? I don't know if he was a practicing astrologer. Um, I'm not sure we have any information on that. 
I mean, he he would have known how to cast charts, and he translated some tab some tables of um, you know astronomical tables to do that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure if he was a practitioner. He was definitely um, he was definitely a translator and did this original work. The strange thing is about him is that his most active years when he translated all of this material from Arabic is that it only lasts for about five, six years. So we don't really know what he was doing before then or what he was doing after then. He just seems to kind of drop away. Wow. Okay. Uh, but he had a number of people that he was either working with or uh, some colleagues that were basically working at the same time and also translating other astrological texts, correct? Yes. Um, he mainly worked with uh, Robert of Ketton, um, a good friend of his. Um, but then they also worked with uh, Hugo of Santaya to um, put together material for the Book of the Nine Judges. So they were all working together in northern or northeastern Spain, and um, Herman was also in France for certain periods. And they, they're very important because they translated some works that no one else translated. Um, a book of, uh, uh, on mundane astrology by Saul. Um, he um, tr translated a, you know, a, number of, a number of other things. Hugo of Santaya translated the so-called Book of Aristotle, which we believe was by Masha'Allah. So they were really seminal and very important. Um, and it's unfortunate that their work did not catch on right away like John of Spain's translations did. And this is due to their because translation style? It's largely due to their translation style. Um, it's more... Um, Herman, in particular, did not think that Arabic writing style was very um, interesting. And so he put his own translation in the more, uh, what he considered a more classical Latin style, which made it harder to read for your average reader of Latin. And I think it's partly because of this that William Lilly, who uses material from Al-Kindi, sometimes without knowing it, he believed Lily believed that Hugo and Herman, or rather Hugo and, um, and Robert, um, did not understand astrology or its terminology. But in fact, they did. Um, sometimes they give slightly better readings of the Al-Kindi material than uh, Lily had access to in, in, his, um, in his library. So their, their Latin style is sometimes a real turnoff, but what I've done is put it into a much more readable uh, English. It takes a little more patience, but um, it's it's great stuff. Okay, so that's the that's why Lily Lily takes the swipe at the authors of the Nine Judges and at Al Kindi, or seems to take a swipe at Al Kindi himself in the introduction of Christian astrology. Is actually taking a swipe at the translators. Yes. Yep. He's taking a swipe at the translators. Um, and the only translations that were available of Al-Kindi were by Hugo and Robert, so he couldn't have meant anyone else but those two, those two people. Okay. Well, I, I'm glad we don't have the same um, people taking swipes at translators today in this day and age. <laughs> um, 
Okay. Uh, so what was there any effect on the later tradition? I mean, if, if Lily was reading, obviously, some of Alkindi's works, you, you mentioned something, and, and this actually goes back to the other book, the translation of the, the 40 chapters, but how much influence did some of these works have on the later, uh, for example, English horary tradition in the um, 16th and 17th centuries? Well, um, uh, as far as the Alkindi material goes, um, Lily was often working off of Alkindi excerpts from Al-Rijal. The Al-Rijal excerpts, you know, are not always complete. You know, he was picking and choosing what he wanted to from um, from Al-Kindi. Um, there's a, but um, I found one instance in which Lily um, has a long section on lost objects and animals and runaways. And up front, uh, Lily says that this material primarily concerns animals, lost animals. The reason he does that is because in his version of Al-Rijal, which was a later one, um, there was a typo. And it said that you should look at the Lord of the Twelfth House. So that would be large animals. But the earlier version of Al-Rijal and uh, Robert and Hugo's editions make it clear that you're looking at the second house. This whole section is not primarily about animals. It is about lost objects. So... Um, so the, the Alkindi material affected later astrology in different ways. It was used very much, and in some cases was misunderstood. Okay. Uh, who but now we. Say, but, pardon? Who would you say? Who would you say was a primary influence on Lily and some of the later English astrologers? Well, I guess for me that's a little hard to say because. Um, a lot of this material would get passed on from astrologer to astrologer. Um, astrologers then, um, unlike so often today, were not trying to innovate. They would give their own opinions about which techniques were best. But um, it's hard to say looking at Lily's book. Uh, well, for example, um, until I had translated Alkindi, I had no idea that this long section on animals and objects and runaways was from Alkindi. Um, and I think Lily didn't know either, because Al-Rijal doesn't say it's from Al-Kindi. Or he, he might, but Lily omits it. So there could be, in Christian astrology, long passages from all sorts of other authorities that we don't know about yet. I have a feeling, in one case I know, that some of this material was from the Book of the Nine Judges. For example... Um, Lily uses, uh, lays out a technique for identifying the name of a thief. And he has a table on this. This method actually comes from the Book of the Nine Judges. It comes from people like Umar. So later in the summer when I publish this, people will see what the method originally was um, uh, in, in the uh, early Arabic period. Okay. Um, I guess I was curious what <clears throat> what you would say, like what the most influential authors were on Lily, because I've been dealing with uh, the last show a couple of months ago. I had Austin Kopic on, and we talked about the question of what what is traditional astrology and how do we define mm -hmm. traditional astrology. Um, 
and we sort of the, our starting point with that discussion was this definition uh, by Christopher Warnock that he's published recently that is basically that tra traditional astrology proper is the astrology practiced in Europe from about 1200 to 1700. Um, and I think w we kind of took issue with that definition because it seems like there's much more continuity in the tradition, and that's something that I tend to think that most people uh, adopt a much broader definition of traditional astrology because there seems like there's more continuity uh, prior to the 20th century or prior to modern astrology than discontinuity in traditional astrology. I would I would definitely agree with that. I would take a, a broader uh, view. I mean, if we I mean to take this example of identifying the name of a thief. So Lily is writing in the 1600s about this method. Doesn't name his sources, but we know that he could have gotten it from the Book of the Nine Judges, which is the 12th century. But that was a translation of material by Umar from the 8th century. So already we've got, uh, what, seven, seven, eight hundred years of tradition there that if we, if we restrict our definition just to, you know, the 1200s to the 1700s, we miss out on all of that continuity. Um, well, and, and to go back to the search of the heart, that's a 12th century work, um, that didn't really get picked up on by the Europeans, even though it is very well attested from ancient times up through this Arabic period. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think we have to we have to take a much broader view, and we won't really know the extent to which um, Lily is drawing on other authors until we get more of this Latin material translated. So like I said, I had no idea that there was so much Alkindi in William Lilly. Um, but now now we, we can uh, compare different topics and see that. Right. Yeah, definitely one of the major impacts of your work over the past four or five years has been opening up a bunch of doors to really the, the pivotal and foundational role that early medieval astrology played in the later astrological tradition. Um, right. Even up until today, and especially through the development and sort of perfection of horary, in a sense. Um, but you've definitely unlocked another large chapter of that with this book by showing us a little bit more about what the the origins of horary were, both practically mm -hmm. speaking and, and conceptually. And I can't I can't say with absolute certainty, you know, when the full blown horary of the kind that we normally think of when that was developed um, it could be that you know from the earliest days um, astrologers immediately started applying natal rules to horary they might have done that but so far as I know there's no record of any textbooks from those early centuries the 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 textbooks that we do get on that material are from the Arabic period so it could be that horary was invented very early and was distinct from thought interpretation, but we don't know. Um, the record seems to show that it was probably developed during the Persian period between the 300s and the 700s, um, and that our only surviving record is largely from the Arabic material. So the, 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 this thought interpretation material has seems to have a longer known pedigree than the full 
full-blown horary with explicit questions. Right. Yeah, and um, and I've definitely come to revise some of my views on the origins of horary over the past few years, and I'm much more willing to say that some form of horary, some rudimentary form of horary was happening in the late Hellenistic tradition because that was the same time that it was also showing up in the Persian tradition and the Indian tradition. Um, right. For example, in, in the Greek horoscopes from the, uh, I think it's the 5th or 6th century. Um, but there's still this sort of major issue where we're missing explicit horary uh, of, you know, explicitly going out of your way to answer a question that has been posed to an astrologer at a specific moment in time uh, versus the little bits of this other uh, vestiges of this other tradition that we have about simply casting a chart to determine what a person is thinking about, but not really spending a lot of time focusing on, you know, trying to answer a specific question or anything of that nature. Yeah, and and I think and and that difference is made more stark through the fact that in some of these rules in Herman's book, The Search of the Heart, um, you can use the significator of thought. As the st- uh, almost by itself to answer a question. Mm-hmm. So there was definite overlap between thought interpretation and explicit horaries. Um, but, it, but based on the record, it seems that thought interpretation was the, uh, was the initial stage. It was initial in terms of procedure, and it was possibly, maybe probably, first historically. Um, in fact, uh, there's, uh, there's a little excerpt that I put in the appendix where Alrigel reports a controversy about when you should cast the ascendant for a chart. Right. And he says that according to Valens, we don't know if Valens really said this, but according to Valens, you cast the chart right when the client comes to you. But then there are other views, he lists two other views, that say you should cast it either when the astrologer decides it's time for the question or when the client decides it's time for a question. And it seems to me that this this view of, of to cast the chart right when you meet is more like the thought interpretation methods. It represents thought interpretation. Whereas the other two views sound more like uh, figuring out when the horary question uh, begins. And this is, it's a conceptual distinction, but it's also a practical one, because if you use these 12th part methods, you know, two and a half degrees of the zodiac, on average, only takes 10 minutes to pass over the ascendant. So if you meet a client and then have a 20-minute conversation you're going to have a different thought significator with that method than if you cast it right when you met. Right. So it isn't. It, it, there is a conceptual distinction, but it, there's also a practical difference uh, depending upon when you want to cast the chart. Right. Um, and that also raises In- other issues uh, about. I mean, because that that controversy you described and the different views that are ascribed to Valens and Hermes and the Indians is something that's still a little bit lingering today as far as the question of when to cast the horary chart uh, 
you know, if it's cast for when the person sends the question or poses the question and or, or if it's cast when the astrologer receives it and, and what the, the sort of tiebreaker should be in that issue. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, Masha'Allah um, addresses this point specifically, or that's, I believe, who it's attributed to in, in, um, in The Search of the Heart. He he gives a, a justification for using all of these things like the bound ruler or the twelfth part, that kind of thing, because he says, since it takes two hours on average for a sign to rise, and because the moon might be in the same aspect to different planets throughout the entire day, he says, if you only looked at the Lord of the Ascendant and the moon, then there would only be a certain number of possible thoughts that clients could ask you throughout the day. And so he seems to be saying that that's why we need faster moving methods or, or methods that, um, that uh, are more subject to change over time. Right. So that you, you need different methods for interpreting thoughts over and above what you might normally do with the Lord of the Ascendant. Well, it's interesting because in, also in on reception, he explicitly says that the astrologer uh, should never cast a chart for themselves, but that they have to pose it to some other astrologer, presumably. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Benati repeats this as well. Um, I always understood, though, or I sort of thought that perhaps the reason from that, that that was some sort of vestige of the consultation chart framework that was still there, that because originally... Perhaps if Horary had developed out of casting a consultation chart and realizing that you can determine the thoughts, perhaps that implication of having the astrologer involved in the process was something that was seen as integral to the, the Horary process for some reason, or the, the process of divination. That you need this kind of triad of astrologer, client, and the stars, something like that? Right, that it's that you're casting a chart for the exchange of the question between two parties, and that um, that it's not just about casting a chart for some random moment in time when a question mm-hmm. comes up, but that it's about the specific exchange of the question and the astrologer actually accepting it and say, "Yes, I will attempt to to answer this question for you to the best of my abilities." Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways that seemed almost still kind of embedded even as late as the 17th century with some of those considerations before judgment about, you know, if Saturn is in the first house, it indicates there's a problem with the, the current, but if it's in the seventh house, there's a problem on the astrologer's side. Yeah, and, and uh, Masha Allah and Umar addressed that very topic, and this is where some of the thought interpretation techniques seem to be a kind of um, a consideration before judgment or a check to see if the client is serious or not. And so what they seem to be saying in certain passages that are from the Book of the Nine Judges, but it's, it's in the appendices, is that um, if someone is trying to play a trick on you, you will be able to tell through these methods. You will be able to get insight into what is really going on. So this thought interpretation stuff seems to be... Um, seems to, to, to play several roles for the astrologer. Um, and I'm, I'm impressed by how many different authorities were using these methods and insisting that you, you know, that you had to use them. Right. Okay. 
Uh, well, it looks like we've got about 10 minutes, so I'm just going to ask uh, a few kind of more rapid-fire questions. I've got four questions here. First, we already touched upon this a little bit, but what, uh, very briefly, what's your definition of traditional astrology, or do you have one? Well, I, I would include um, all the astrology practiced by the Hellenistic Greeks, the Persians and the Arabs, and the medieval Latins. So from, you know, the first century B.C. or A.D. up through about 1700. I think we should just call that whole period traditional astrology because there's much more overlap and much more similarities than there are any differences. Okay, great. That's also my, my definition. Uh, very briefly, if it's possible to say briefly, what are your personal views on the issue of fate and free will? Well, for a number of years, I've been pretty much a strict determinist. Um, but I might be modifying some of those views of some of my studying of Neoplatonism um, that I'm working on, and also because I have this um, this ceremonial um, uh, background also, which is heavily linked to Neoplatonism. And so, although I'm largely um, a determinist, um, I might be somewhat flexible on on that. <laughs> okay, right, because your, In the future. Your, introduction, your introduction to astrology, your gateway into it, was through ceremonial magic in the first place? Right. Okay. Uh, where? Third question, where, where's traditional astrology going? Where do you see it going? Well, I think what we're going to see is um, through more translations and more people getting exposed to this, I think we're going to see that in the next five years, traditional astrology is going to be a natural starting point for anyone trying to get into astrology. It's going to be um, a main central presence. You know, for many years it, it seems that it was more of a specialty hobby or something that you would get into um, kind of on the side or you might hear a talk here or there at a conference. I think it's going to take center stage. Right. Yeah, it's definitely, it's surprising how, even at this point, despite how much stronger the sort of movement is, is becoming, how it still sort of gets sidelined sometimes, for example, with the, the UAC track selection process and everything else. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is that it takes a, a while for people to digest the material. And um, some of the courses that you might take right now uh, might not take into account the new translations that have come out in the last five years. So it's going to take some time for courses to reflect the translations and for people to digest the information a bit more. And then also, maybe most importantly, figuring out the right kind of worldview that allows them to live with traditional astrology. Because it's very hard if you're a... a believe in modern ideologies of total freedom, um, it's very hard to come to grips with traditional astrology. But I think I think it's going to take center stage and, and we're going to cover all those bases in the next few years. Right, both as a uh, technique or form of a practical technique, but also as a perhaps a philosophy or a way of life? Yeah. Okay. Um, and last question you have a few minutes, is what what is coming up for you in the future? What are you working on, and uh, what can we expect to see from you? 
Well, um, this year I'm hoping to put out several new volumes of the um, Logos and Light series, which is my uh, series of um, traditional philosophy for astrologers and occultists. I'm almost done with the Plato lectures. I hope to get out Aristotle and the Stoics. And then after that, there will be more spiritual philosophies from the ancient and medieval periods, some more magical stuff. Astrologically, um, I hope before the end of the year to put out a, uh, a book on elections. And then next year, uh, probably several volumes on mundane astrology. Um, and then after that, to, you know, uh, standalone works like Firmicus Maternus and Original, that kind of thing. Excellent. And I guess we've got a conference coming up later this year as well. Yeah, this will be a conference in late September. It's put on by the AFA in honor of James Holden. And uh, you and Demetra George and I uh, will be leading this um, conference. I'm really excited about it. Um, it'll start yeah. out with Demetra George. Uh, she'll be doing... Um, a tutorial for several hours on basic ideas in traditional astrology, and then for the rest of the weekend, we're going to uh, lay out some techniques and talk about some philosophies of life and all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, we, the three of us, got together last summer and worked on those uh, definitions and doing some translations and stuff, and it worked really well. So I think it'll be a good opportunity for the three of us to get together and... Um, start, uh, you know, turning traditional astrology into an actual uh, school and community that, uh, you know, perhaps rivals some of the other schools in the astrological community today. Yeah, so that traditional astrology can be more of a lived experience and, and, uh, and a way of life. Absolutely. Right. So we'll be debuting some of that stuff in September. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that's all of the questions I've got for you. Um, where can people find out about your work if they want to learn more? They can go to um, bendykes.com. That's B-E-N-D-Y-K-E-S.com. And that has a number of papers and, and uh, study guides, and you can buy my books and the Logos and Light series. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that would be the central central place. Okay. And uh, The Search of the Heart is uh, printed and is available now, right? Yes. Yep, both The Alkindi and Search of the Heart are available now. The Book of the Nine Judges will be July at the earliest, but probably more like August. Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show, and uh, I look forward to having you on again in the future. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, I will... See you all next time. Uh, this has been WTAR Traditional Astrology Radio.